Gentlemen, we do not stop till nightfall. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? food hot sausage and mustard while we're in the mood cold jelly and custard second breakfast second breakfast second 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 breakfast wonderful right good sausages yep mustard nice i'll leave the jelly for later Hello. Oh, brilliant. Thank you ever so much for coming back. Great to see you all. So yes, welcome to Second Breakfast. My name's Ads, as I'm sure you know. Uh, I am one of three from the Green Door podcast, along with James and May. Uh, And as we discussed on the, the previous episode, this is, well, a mini episode. It's trying to fill the gap a little bit because we are conscious that perhaps we're not getting those episodes out quite as quickly as we'd like as as you'd like so myself James May will probably throw a few episodes out as solo projects so my my one is going to look at the history of Middle Earth and initially volume six the return of the shadow So I'm really excited, can't wait to sort of jump in and tonight's episode is actually going to look at the first chapter uh, in quite a lot of detail. But as, you know, we we said on the the last show, these mini-episodes are not intended to replace the main show. We fully intend to continue working our way through the Silmarillion and we can't wait. We're looking forward to finding the time, hopefully, uh, with our busy lives and schedules and time zones to find in a slot when we can record the next episode and get that out for you. But in the meantime, you might find a few of these sort of special mini episodes falling into your podcast feed. Um, okay, so well, let, let's let's dive right in. Let, let's let's pick up the return of the shadow. Um, but as well as picking up the return of the shadow, I thought it would be good to also highlight some of the other books that I'm planning to use today and then moving forward as well. So 
as I've touched on, Volume 6, The Return of the Shadow, otherwise known as Part 1 of the History of the Lord of the Rings by Christopher Tolkien. Now, I have the 2015 paperback version. There's a wonderful uh, drawing of Gandalf uh, returning to Bag End. I believe that's actually the title, Returns to Bag End, by John Howe, uh, the fantastic Tolkien uh, artist. And the second book that I have tonight is The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by Humphrey Carpenter, with the assistance of Christopher Tolkien, and this was first published in 1981. Now again, I have the paperback version uh, from 2006. There's a very famous photo of the professor sat by a tree. Uh, I believe the photo was taken by Billet Potter. And incidentally, and interestingly, the photo itself, I found out, was actually the upper cover photograph in the very first official Tolkien calendar that was released in 1974. The third book that I have is called J.R.R. Tolkien, A Biography. And this was written, again, by Humphrey Carpenter, first published in 1977. My version is the 2016 paperback, nice and cheap and cheerful. And it is a really, really good read. I'm actually listening at the moment to the audiobook of it, as I drive to and fro from work. Um, but it's fascinating because the author, uh, Humphrey Carpenter, was given unrestricted access to all of the professor's papers, as well as being able to interview the professor's friends and family. And it enables him to explore the process undertaken by Tolkien to produce The Lord of the Rings. As it confirms in, in the very first chapter as well, he also met Tolkien in person and has worked very closely with his son Christopher over the later years. The next book that I have in front of me is The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion by Wayne G. Hammond and Christina Skull. This was first published in 2005. My version is actually a 2014 uh, hardback. It was part of a box set released by HarperCollins Publishers and included hardback versions of The Fellowship of the Two Towers and also The Return of the King. So it was a nice sort of package deal. Uh, the book itself is fantastic. I would strongly recommend anyone who hasn't looked at it to try and pick up a copy. It gives so much added depth to how Lord of the Rings is is made up, really, and some of the detail, some of the information that you you gain from the pages within, uh, really, really worthwhile. And then finally, I have, of course, the Lord of the Rings, Part One: The Fellowship of the Ring, by the Professor J.R.R. Tolkien, first published, as I'm sure you know, in 1954. However. I am planning to take photos before the release of these episodes to show the books that I'm going to use. And I took the time to count what books are on my, my bookshelf when it comes to the, the big three. So I have 10 Silmarillions. I have 15 versions of The Hobbit. And I have a whopping 19 uh, Lord of the Rings. So what I've decided to do is 
try and use a different version each time I record and I can then put out a picture with a different copy of The Lord of the Rings. Tonight's will be the hardback Fellowship of the Ring that was part of that box set that I mentioned earlier when I was discussing the companion. So that's what I plan to do and I'll put something out in our Facebook group and also on Twitter as well. So before I dive into The Return of the Shadow, let's just look at the build-up. So after The Hobbit was published, on the 21st of September 1937, Stanley Unwin, the chairman of Allen & Unwin, stated that a large public would be clamouring next year to hear more from you about Hobbits. This caused the professor to reply to Unwin in a letter dated the 15th of October 1937. All the same, I am a little perturbed. I cannot think of anything more to say about Hobbits. Mr Baggins seems to have exhibited so fully both the Took and the Baggins side of their nature, but I have only too much to say and much already written about the world into which the Hobbit intruded. You can, of course, see any of it and say what you like about it, if and when you wish. I should rather like an opinion, other than that of Mr C.S. Lewis and my children, whether it has any value in itself or as a marketable commodity, apart from hobbits. But if it is true that the hobbit has come to stay and more will be wanted, I will start the process of thought and try to get some idea of a theme drawn from this material for treatment in a similar style and for a similar audience, possibly including actual hobbits. My daughter would like something on the Took family. One reader wants fuller details about Gandalf and the Necromancer, but that is too dark. Then, on the 16th of December, 1937, in yet another letter to Unwin, Tolkien expanded yet further. I think it is plain that quite apart from it, a sequel or successor to The Hobbit is called for. I promise to give this thought and attention, but I am sure you will sympathise when I say that the construction of elaborate and consistent mythology and two languages rather occupies the mind, and the Silmarils are in my heart, so that goodness knows what will happen. Mr Baggins began as a comic tale among conventional and inconsistent Grimm's fairy tale dwarfs and got drawn into the edge of it so that even Sauron the Terrible peeped over the edge. And what more can hobbits do? They can be comic, but their comedy is suburban, unless it is set against things more elemental. But the real fun about orcs and dragons, to my mind, was before their time. Perhaps a new, if similar, line. Do you think Tom Bombadil, the spirit of the vanishing Oxford and Berkshire countryside, could be made into the hero of a story? Or is he, as I suspect, fully enshrined in the enclosed verses? Still, I could enlarge the portrait. So that was on the 16th of December, 1937. And the very next day, the 17th, C.A. Firth of Allen and Unwin wrote to inform Tolkien 
that the demand for The Hobbit became so acute with the beginning of the Christmas orders that we had to rush the reprint. And then a mere two days later, on the 19th of December 1937, Tolkien replies to thank him of this exciting news, and then in a final sentence before signing off, states, I have written the first chapter of a new story about hobbits, a long-expected party. So therefore, as Christopher Tolkien agreed, it seems that the it's alive moment of Lord of the Rings was not just first put to paper in those three days following his letter of the 16th of December, but actually in all likelihood it was first considered by the professor then as well. All of his energy had been towards pushing the Silmarillion, but eventually, and perhaps solely due to the success of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings had its creative moment of eucatastrophe. Right, so before we actually work our way through the first chapter of The Return of the Shadow, one of the things I'd like to just mention at the outset is... Anyone who can't quite remember what the actual published first chapter of The Lord of the Rings says, or thinks that maybe a quick refresh would be good, I would suggest that they go and they read it. It's 19 pages. It's not very long. It's going to be lovely reading it anyway because it's such a great book. Um, But I think you'll get a better understanding more appreciation of some of the elements that we'll talk about in tonight's episode if you remind yourself what that first chapter actually does say. As we go through this chapter, as we go through the whole of this book, I'm going to assume in most instances that you, the listener, already have a certain level of knowledge about Lord of the Rings and this chapter, for example. However, I am going to read now from A Long Expected Party, the published version, the actual the actual bits that made it to print. When Mr Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar, and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame... There was also his prolonged vigour to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr Baggins. At ninety he was much the same as at fifty. At ninety-nine they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess, apparently, perpetual youth as well as reputedly, inexhaustible wealth. It will have to be paid for, they said. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. 
Right, now it's important to remember that what we will now look at in detail is only phase one of three phases. So as far as the story develops, this is the first go, this is the first effort. Um, and the opening chapter, phase one of the opening chapter, actually then consists of four different versions. Um, each one uh, where the professor changes, improves, fiddles with it, etc, etc. So this is phase one of three phases, and phase one of this opening chapter consists of four attempts, four versions. Now the opening pages of this chapter include a copy print of the original opening page handwritten by the professor. In the top left corner, with a big circle around it, are the words First Germ, scribbled again by J.R.R. Tolkien many years later to confirm that this was the very first beginnings of The Lord of the Rings. This first germ consisted of a five-page manuscript, and it is this that Christopher Tolkien suspects is being referred to in his letter to Charles Firth at Allen and Unwin on the 19th of December 1937, rather than any of the subsequent versions that no doubt, according to Christopher, followed quickly afterwards. Now, I actually posted a copy of this page in our Facebook group, uh, The Green Door Podcast, and also on our Twitter feed. So do go and check this out if you haven't had the opportunity to see it. Or um, if you, you did but want to go back and revisit it, then obviously by all means and comment, comment again. Um, it's super interesting to see this handsome script as Christopher describes it. But it's also really, really fascinating to see the indecision, the scribbles, the amendments that are made throughout. So I'm going to just mention uh, a few of the comments that were made by friends of the show in our Facebook group about this page that I that I put in there. So Andy, he says, I'm really surprised at the professor's writing. It's so beautifully formed considering this was but a first draft. It makes you wonder just how long the writing process took for a book the size of The Lord of the Rings. He then goes on to comment that it's very hobbitish, uh, so much in the middle of style. Uh, he never knew his actual handwriting, even his best writing was like that. And it's true, you know, it, it's a very, very handsome, as Christopher Tolkien remarks, it's a very handsome script. It does get progressively less handsome, I believe. But um, certainly it started out uh, very impressive. A pepper, she's put alliteration even at that stage. Um, all the hobbits, bees, and then fleeting fame, etc. And then finally Sarah, uh, she put, isn't it so serendipitous the way we came to have Lord of the Rings? So true, so true. I myself find this letter completely fascinating. I can't help visualising the Professor Tolkien sat at his desk, perhaps shortly after writing that letter on the 16th of December, deep in thought, pen in hand, and then the magic starting to happen. Now Christopher comments about the change in the size of his father's handwriting, and also the very immediate change of direction. 
the beginning of that chapter, it appears, was at first meant to be when M, and then in a larger text as well. But this is actually stopped mid-M. The M isn't even finished, Christopher states, and replaced underneath in slightly smaller handwriting with when Bilbo. And Christopher summarises this first version, saying, The text begins in a handsome script, but the writing becomes progressively faster and deteriorates at the end into a rapid scrawl, not at all points legible. There are a good many alterations to the manuscript. The text that follows represents the original form as I judge it to have been, granting that what is original and what is not cannot be perfectly distinguished. Some changes can be seen to have been made at the moment of writing, and these are taken up into the text. But others are characteristic anticipations of the following version, and these are ignored. In any case, it is highly probable that my father wrote the versions of this opening chapter in quick succession. Now, I'm not planning to read the entire version. We'd be here all night, and quite frankly, I do not want to get into trouble for trying to impersonate an audiobook. So instead, as you no doubt have already realised, I'm going to be reading passages from The Return of the Shadow, and, you know, later ones as well. And I will highlight and then discuss the more interesting parts. Um, I also won't be able to point out every change or every amendment, and I'm going to try and focus on presenting a broad account throughout, highlighting some of what I believe myself as some of the most interesting parts. Um, now, obviously, if you're finding this is something you really wish to explore in more detail, then brilliant, fantastic. Um, go delve like a hobbit a little bit deeper, pick up a copy, and you can read to your heart's content the entire version, complete with all of Christopher's accompanying comments and notes, and there are lots. Now, after saying all of that, I am going to read the first initial paragraph of version one. A long-expected party. When Bilbo, son of Bungo, of the family of Baggins, had celebrated, prepared to celebrate his 70th birthday, there was for a day or two some talk in the neighbourhood. He had once had a little fleeting fame among the people of Hobbiton and Bywater. He had disappeared after breakfast one April the 30th, and not reappeared until lunchtime on June the 22nd in the following year, a very odd proceeding for which he had never given any good reason, and of which he wrote a nonsensical account. After that, he returned to normal ways, and the shaken confidence of the district was gradually restored, especially as Bilbo seemed, by some unexplained method, to have become more than comfortably off, if not positively wealthy. Indeed, it was the magnificence of the party, rather than the fleeting fame, that at first caused the talk. After all, that other odd business had happened some twenty years before, and was becoming decently forgotten. Well, straight away, there's the birthday party appearing in the first version of the first phase. However, BBB, otherwise known as Birthday Boy Bilbo, is going to be celebrating his 70th birthday rather than the famous 11 
it fixes the story to the events of The Hobbit, but only 20 years afterwards. It also has Bilbo's birthday as the 20th of September. It even references Bilbo writing a nonsensical account of his earlier adventures, which I thought was a nice touch. So the party and its preparations are grand, and Tolkien lists briefly the recipients of his invitations. Now, what I'd like you to do is think of Bilbo's speech, the one that you know, the one that you have read countless times. Picture the scene, picture what it it creates in, in your imagination. Think what Bilbo does, think what Bilbo says, and then listen to this. My dear people, began Mr Baggins. Hear, hear, they replied in chorus. My dear Bagginses, he went on, standing now on his chair, so that the light of the lanterns that illuminated the enormous pavilion flashed upon the gold buttons of his embroidered waistcoat for all to see. And my dear Tooks and Grubs and Chubs and Burrowses and Boffinses and Proudfoots. Proud feet, shouted an elderly hobbit from the back. His name, of course, was Proudfoot and merited. His feet were large, exceptionally furry, and both were on the table. Also, my dear Sackville Bagginses, that I welcome back at last to Bag End, Bilbo continued. Today is my 70th birthday. Hooray, hooray, and many happy turns, they shouted. That was the sort of stuff they liked. Short, obvious, uncontroversial. I hope you're all enjoying yourself as much as I am. Deafening cheers, cries of yes and no, and noises of trumpets and whistles. There were a great many junior hobbits present as hobbits were indulgent to their children, especially if there was a chance of an extra meal. Hundreds of musical crackers had been pulled. Most of them were labelled Made in Dale. What that meant only Bilbo and a few of his took nephews knew but they were very marvellous crackers. I have called you all together, Bilbo went on, when the last cheer died away, and something in his voice made a few of the Tooks prick up their ears. First of all, to tell you that I am immensely fond of you, and that seventy years is too short a time to live among such excellent and charming hobbits. Hear, hear! I don't know half of you, half as well as I should like, and less than half of you, half as well as you deserve. No cheers. A few claps. Most of them were trying to work it out. Secondly, to celebrate my birthday and the twentieth year of my return. An uncomfortable rustle. Lastly, to make an announcement. He said this very loud, and everybody sat up who could. Goodbye. I am going away after dinner. Also, I am going to get married. He sat down. The silence was flabbergastation. It was broken only by Mr Proudfoot, who kicked over the table. Mrs Proudfoot choked in the middle of a drink. What? I'm off, but not till after dinner. Oh, and I might get hitched too, if I can find a nice Mrs B who'll have me. But right now I'm just going to sit back down and finish my grub. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't work. It doesn't work with what I know in my head. My, you know, my imagination wonderfully paints 
the description as the published version states. This is so alien to that. Um, right. There are a few familiar passages. They do stand out like bright neon lights amongst the very alien words of the rest of the passage. And you can't help smiling as the words roll off your tongue. I'm not going to mention them. You know which ones they are. You know the, the famous sayings uh, which you, you hear all the time. Um, they're there still, and they're there in the very first version of phase one. So yes, there are things that are different, very different, but there's also real, real detail there that we know stays in. And that was written in those three days between the 16th of December 1937 and the 19th, which is incredible to think about it. Now we also learn later in the version that actually this story is going to leave good old Bilbo with a wife and children and that the story that we're going to then hear about is going to be for one of his descendants instead, as yet unnamed. We don't know who he is or she, but you know we, we don't know who they are. But the ring does make an appearance in this version, and the suggestion is that Bilbo does use it of sorts, though not in full view as part of the ending of his speech that we know. So it states, As a matter of fact, Bilbo Baggins disappeared silently and unnoticed. The ring was in his hand even while he made his speech in the middle of the confused outburst of talk that followed the flabbergasted silence. He was never seen in Hobbiton again. When the carriages came for the guests, there was no one to say goodbye to. And then later on, the fact is, in spite of his after-dinner speech, he had grown suddenly very tired of them all. The Tookishness, not of course that all Tooks ever had much of this wayward quality, had quite suddenly and uncomfortably come to life again. Also, another secret. After he had blowed his last fifty ducats on the party, he had not got any money or jewellery left, except the ring and the gold buttons on his waistcoat. So these are the only mentions, and very subtle ones at that, of the ring in this first initial draft. Its importance is still hidden, although as you'll see later, its true power is already at this very early stage beginning to form in the professor's mind. The reason for Bilbo's disappearance, we are led to believe, is a combination of Turkish behaviour and bankruptcy. Marriage was mentioned outwardly to the other hobbits, and he would let them believe this. The fact that in this very first version, Tolkien does have him eventually settling down with a family is beside the point. It's not what, in the writing of this chapter, Tolkien was saying Bilbo was actually thinking at that time. Christopher even mentions that the rather abrupt conclusion to this first version suggests his father wasn't at this stage really aware what Bilbo intended to do after leaving Hobbiton. We do know he was never intended to be the main character, though, moving forwards. And then finally, you, you, may, you may have already realised this, there's no sign or mention as of yet of Gandalf. But fear not, you're not going to be waiting long.
Okay, so that was a long expected party, phase one, version one. We now move on to phase one, version two. Version two is unfinished. It breaks off um, the morning after the party, but as a manuscript, it did serve to introduce much new material into those opening pages. So in version two, Bilbo is now holding and celebrating his 71st birthday with the grand party. And we have some old friends now invited making an appearance. Time drew nearer. Odd-looking carts with odd-looking packages began to toll up the hill to Bag End, the residence of Mr Bilbo Baggins. They arrived by night and startled folk peered out of their doors to gape at them. Some were driven by outlandish folk singing strange songs, elves or heavily hooded dwarfs. There was one huge creaking wain with great lumbering tow-haired men on it that caused quite a commotion. It bore a large bee under a crown. It could not get across the bridge by the mill, and the men carried the goods on their backs up the hill, stumping on the hobbit road like elephants. All the beer at the inn vanished as if down a drain when they came downhill again. Later in the week, a cart came trotting in in broad daylight. An old man was driving it all alone. He wore a tall, pointed blue hat and a long grey cloak. Hobbit boys and girls ran after the cart all the way up the hill. It had a cargo of fireworks that they could see when it began to unload, great bundles of them labelled with a red G. G for grand, they shouted, and that was as good a guess as they could make at its meaning. Not many of their elders guessed better. Hobbits have rather short memories as a rule. As for the little old man, he vanished inside Bilbo's front door and never reappeared. So, as only 20-odd years have passed, the mysterious cart bee is no doubt from the King of Dale, Bard, last seen shooting big scary dragons out of the air. Also note the outlandish folk, the elves and the dwarves, and of course a certain wizard, who does appear to have shrunk, although this is consistent with how he was described in the original Hobbit that had just been released a few months earlier. His fireworks also make their first appearance, including the one that resembles a dragon. Finally, the party catered for all of the guests, but there was a special invite uh, for a dinner party within a great pavilion, complete with the party tree references. And this was for 144 guests, or one gross, plus Gandalf and Bilbo. Some later amendments to the age 71, so that it then read as 72, was clearly linked to this number, being half its amount. And Christopher suggests that this was actually with version 3 in mind, and the introduction of a new character, maybe the new star of the show. The speech in version 2 is very similar, with a few narrative additions, but chiefly, already by version 2, large parts of the preparations for, and the party itself, 
have formed in Tolkien's mind. Christopher still, nonetheless, refers to it as a beginning without a destination. Right, version 3 of phase 1. And the major change. This regards a new hobbit taking centre stage. The individual that would, in time, become Frodo Baggins. Humphrey Carpenter, in his biography, states... Tolkien had, as yet, no clear idea of what the new story was going to be about. At the end of The Hobbit, he had stated that Bilbo remained very happy to the end of his days, and those were extraordinarily long. So how could The Hobbit have any new adventures worth the name without this being contradicted? And had he not explored most of the possibilities in Bilbo's character? He decided to introduce a new Hobbit... Bilbo's son, and to give him the name of a family of toy koala bears owned by his children, the Bingos. So he crossed out Bilbo in the first draft, and above it wrote Bingo. As such, the opening paragraph of version 3 became rather Bilbo light, and instead introduced from the very beginning the koala bear-inspired son, Bingo Baggins. When Bingo, son of Bilbo, of the well-known Baggins family, prepared to celebrate his 72nd birthday, there was some talk in the neighbourhood and people polished up their memories. The Bagginses were fairly numerous in those parts and generally respected but Bilbo belonged to a branch of the family that was a bit peculiar, and there were some odd stories about them. Bingo's father, as some still remembered, had once made quite a stir in Hobbiton and Bywater. He had disappeared one April the 30th after breakfast, and had not reappeared until lunchtime on June the 22nd in the following year. A very odd proceeding, and one for which he had never accounted satisfactorily. He wrote a book about it, of course, but even those who had read it never took that seriously. It is no good telling hobbits about dragons. They either disbelieve you or feel uncomfortable, and in either case tend to avoid you afterwards. Now version 3 also sees first mention of the numbers 111, or 111, and 33, although not yet in the correct context. Shortly before 111, is the age the already married Bilbo and his wife Primilla Brandybuck leave the Shire, whereas 33 is the number of years Bingo lived on at Bag End before his farewell party. These numbers would obviously remain, but in very different guises, being eventually the ages of Bilbo and Frodo respectively at the start of the published final version. We also learn, in amongst other minor but interesting additions, of Buckland, of the Brandywine, of the Old Forest, and of Old Gaffer Gamgee of Bagshot Row. We see a glimpse into the Professor's mind about the direction taken for the ring. This had been left by Bilbo to his son, Bingo, as a parting gift. Finally, 
we have an ending to the chapter that sees Bingo hiding in a large cupboard outside his dining room in Bag End, wearing the ring as guests came to collect the presents he had left them. All things come to an end. Evening came on. Bag End was left empty and gloomy. People went away, haggling and arguing most of them. You could hear their voices coming up the hill in the dusk. Very few gave a thought to Bingo. They decided he had gone mad and run off, and that was one Baggins the less, and that was that. They were annoyed about the legendary money, of course, but meanwhile there was tea waiting for them. There were some, of course, who regretted his sudden disappearance. A few of his younger friends were really distressed, but not all of them had said goodbye to him. That is easily explained and soon will be. Bingo stepped out of the cupboard. It was getting dim. His watch said six. The door was open as he had kept the key in his pocket. He went out, locked the door, leaving the key and looked at the sky. Stars were coming out. It is going to be a fine night, he said. What a lark. Well, I must not keep them waiting. Now we're off. Goodbye. He trotted down the garden, jumped the fence, and took to the fields, and passed like an invisible rustle in the grasses. And now to version four. This version sees Bingo, who in version three had been the son of Bilbo, changed to Bingo Bulger Baggins, the nephew celebrating his 72nd birthday. The professor chose to type this version, and much of the previous version remained into version 4, other than the above shift from son to nephew. So Christopher Tolkien comments, There were further twists still to come in this amazingly sinuous evolution before the final structure was reached, but this was how the opening chapter stood for some time, and Bingo Bulger Baggins, nephew, or more properly first cousin once removed of Bilbo Baggins, is present throughout the original form of Book One of the Fellowship of the Ring. I set out briefly here the major shifts and stages accounted thus far. Version One. Bilbo gives the party. Age 70. I am going to tell you a story about one of his descendants. Version 2. Bilbo gives the party. Age 71. Version 3. Bilbo married and disappeared from Hobbiton with his wife, Primula Brandybuck, when he was 111. His son, Bingo Baggins, gives the party aged 72. Version 4. Bilbo, unmarried, adopted his young cousin Bingo Bolger, son of Primula Brandybuck, changed his name to Bingo Bolger Baggins, and disappeared from Hobbiton when he was 111. His adopted cousin, Bingo Bolger Baggins, gives the party aged 72. So there we have versions 1, versions 2, versions 3 and version 4. Um, there is however 
a tale that is brewing. On the 1st of February, 1938, Tolkien wrote to Charles Firth of Allen and Overy, sending the typed fourth version of A Long Expected Party, and requesting some assistance from the same person who had been such a good critic of The Hobbit in the early days, Rainer Unwin. Would you ask Mr Unwin whether his son, a very reliable critic, would care to read the first chapter of the sequel to The Hobbit? I have typed it. I have no confidence in it, but if he thought it a promising beginning, could add to it the tale that is brewing. So what clues do we have in these four early versions as to what the professor meant by the tale that is brewing? The professor has hinted at the introduction of friends of Bingo, who would appear later in the story. We also now know of Buckland and, of course, the Old Forest, a destination that has been described previously as a dubious region. Perhaps Tom Bombadil is already a later objective, especially as we know he was already firmly in Tolkien's mind at this point. But perhaps the real clues come from a series of notes written on both sides of a single piece of paper. Bilbo goes off with three Took neighbours, Odo, Frodo and Drogo. He has only a small bag of money. They walk all night, east. Adventures, troll-like. Witch house, on way to Rivendell. Elrond again. By advice of Gandalf? A tale in Elrond's house. Where is Gandalf? asks Odo. Said I was old and foolish enough now to take care of myself, said B. But I dare say he will turn up. He is apt to. So we have there, first mention of Frodo. Now it's not the Frodo that we know and love later on. Um, The name, yes, but the character that this Frodo talks about, as we'll see later on, is not the Frodo that, that we know. But nonetheless, the name is there. Also, it talks of four, yet four don't go into three's company. Eastwood, Buckland, Old Forest and Rivendell are the destinations. It mentions the Witch House, which will be the Barrow of a Barrow White, and Elrond makes an appearance. It also, at the end of that note, suggests that a certain wizard is not going to turn up. Now this passage is likely to sit in the timeline alongside the second version as it still has Bilbo rather than Bingo, although the professor later amends this name to show a consistent line of thought, but just the name change. So he obviously agreed with what the rest of the notes said, he just changed the name from um, Bilbo to Bingo. Another note says, The ring, whence its origin? Necromancer? Not very dangerous, when used for good purpose but it exacts its penalty. You must either lose it or yourself. Bilbo could not bring himself to lose it. He starts on a holiday that struck out with his wife, handing over Ring to Bingo, but he vanishes, Bingo worried, 
resists desire to go and find him, though he does travel round a lot looking for news. Won't lose ring as he feels it will ultimately bring him to his father. At last he meets Gandalf. Gandalf's advice. You must stage a disappearance and the ring may then be cheated into letting you follow a similar path. But you have got to really disappear and give up the past. Hence the party. Bingo confides in his friends, Odo, Frodo and Vigo, insist on coming too. Gandalf, rather dubious. You will share the same fate as Bingo, he said, if you dare the ring. So this has Bingo in from the start, and the son of Bilbo, so it must be connected with the third version. Gandalf's role, establishing the party as something arising from the wizard's advice regarding the ring. Christopher remarks, It is remarkable that already at this stage, when my father was still working on the opening chapter, so much of the ring's nature was already present in embryo. And it really is. I mean, you can see so much of what we would later know the ring to be already in this note. Then finally, on the back of a separate page that incidentally on the front contained the professor's earliest surviving map of the Shire, was written what Tolkien would later annotate, the genesis of Lord of the Rings. B.B sets out with two nephews. They turn southward to collect Frodo Brandybuck. Get lost in Old Forest. Adventure with Willow Man and Barrow Whites. T. Bombadil. Reach Rivendell and find Bilbo. Bilbo had had a sudden desire to visit the wild again, but meets Gandalf at Rivendell. Learns about... Here, presumably, the narrative idea changes. Gandalf had turned up at Bag End. Bilbo tells him of his desire for wild and gold dragon curse working. He goes to Rivendell between the worlds and settles down. Ring must eventually go back to Maker or draw you towards it. Rather a dirty trick, handing it on. So more Ring Insight. There's a nod to picking up a hobbit on their way to Rivendell. We, we know that that's Merry. You know, that, that will become Merry. Here, it's Frodo Brandybuck. Um, we also are meeting Gandalf now at Rivendell. Then, finally, in a series of letters to Stanley Unwin, we see the story floundering before finally and wonderfully it grabs the professor's attention. On the 17th of February, 1938, Tolkien writes, They say it is the first step that costs the effort. I do not find it so. I am sure I could write unlimited first chapters. I have indeed written many. The Hobbit sequel is still where it was, and I have only the vaguest notions of how to proceed not ever intending any sequel. I fear I squandered all my favourite motifs and characters on the original Hobbit. Then on the 18th of February, 1938, the very next day, he writes again to Stanley Unwin. 
I am most grateful to your son Rainer, and am encouraged. At the same time, I find it only too easy to write opening chapters, and for the moment the story is not unfolding. I have unfortunately very little time, made shorter by a rather disastrous Christmas vacation. I squandered so much on the original Hobbit, which was not meant to have a sequel, that it is difficult to find anything new in that world. And then, on the 4th of March, 1938, in the course of a long letter again to Stanley Unwin, states, The sequel to The Hobbit has now progressed as far as the end of the third chapter, but stories tend to get out of hand, and this has taken an unpremeditated turn. And as Christopher Tolkien writes, the unpremeditated turn, beyond any doubt, was the appearance of the Black Riders. More on that next episode. Okay, so that's it. Thank you for coming and having second breakfast with me, for listening uh, to me talk to you. Um, do let me know what you think. Um, come and find us in our Facebook group, the Green Door Podcast, and also on Twitter as well. Um, and let me know, yeah, comment on you know what you found interesting. Uh, I'd really, really be interested myself to to find out what you think about about this amazing chapter. Okay. Next episode, we're going to look at the first phase from Hobbiton to the Woody End, which is chapter two of The Return of the Shadow. All I've got to say is thank you for listening, and this is Second Breakfast, 